This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Activate, a show brought to you by Amnesty International. Welcome to Activate. Uh, this is our May show and you're here with Kerry this evening. Um, we have a, an interesting show ahead for you. We've got an interview with Rowan Hamill-McMahon, who is the partner, actually, of Hannah Kaneen, who we interviewed last month in April. They were both talking about their time in Myanmar and they just arrived, well, a couple of months, actually, arrived back from... Um, Myanmar via a repatriation flight to New Zealand after um, arriving back in the country just before the coup started. So a very strange time for them. They'd uh, lived in Myanmar for a few years and uh, now back here in New Zealand and had quite a story to tell. If you're interested in what's been happening in Myanmar, you'll find this conversation really interesting and really insightful, in part, I think, because we don't always get to see or hear from um, people who've actually been on the ground during an experience. Sometimes with Amnesty, we're we're talking to people or about people who we are struggling to find, or um, we're talking to people who know that someone's gone missing, or we're, we're reporting on a story from very far away with no direct contact. So this is a really unique perspective, and I hope you enjoy the show. We also do have our usual... Uh, human rights roundup news from around the world. So um, I hope you enjoy that too. Hello and welcome to another edition of Human Rights in the News for the month of May. This evening I am covering latest news from Myanmar. However, in my research the last couple of days, it has become apparent to me that finding out detailed information about what exactly is going on in Myanmar across the country is actually quite difficult. And I assume that this is for two reasons. One, that it is becoming very dangerous for journalists within Myanmar to report and then get the news out, and some of that's to do with um, internet blackouts. And then it's also similarly difficult for overseas journalists to then fact-check back what information is coming out from citizens and um, other groups. So the information that I have been able to ascertain has come in part from the BBC. There's a journalist there called Freya Cole, and she has been reporting on the coup since the beginning. And unfortunately, we have reached the grim total of 100 days since the coup. And last week, she was reporting that the situation remains bleak, that the calls for a return to democracy remain as strong today as they were at the start of the coup. And you will remember, if you have been following this crisis, that the junta took over the country following the election and they blamed voter fraud. However, that has never been proven. Reports from activists are that 781 deaths have occurred and 52 of those are children. The UNDP is reporting that fallout from the coup combined with the global pandemic will push another 12 million people into poverty. 
Freya Cole reported that from day one, uh, young people were getting in touch with her via her Twitter account, and these were local activists. She stated that 180,000 people uh, to date had contacted her via her Twitter account, and she made the point that it's very dangerous for citizens to speak to journalists, so she was taking extreme care to keep their identity anonymous. Aung San Suu Kyi remains under house arrest and human rights organisations demand an arms embargo. Basically, human rights organisations and citizens from Myanmar are urging individual countries to stop the flow of arms to the junta. One aspect of the uprising is that the three-fingered salute remains a symbol and that comes from the Spring Revolution. National Radio was reporting last week that if you need cash in Myanmar, you have to get up early. Queues start forming outside banks at 4am, where the first 15 or 30 customers are given a plastic token that will allow them to enter the bank when it reopens at 9.30am and withdraw cash. That's according to more than a dozen people who spoke to Reuters. And this really relates to Myanmar's crumbling economy, which is running low on cash. In terms of the front line, Reuters was reporting last week that Myanmar army battles anti-coup rebels as armed resistance grows. Myanmar's army battled local militia fighters in the northwestern town of Mindat last week, residents said. The fighting is some of the heaviest since the coup and underlies the growing chaos as the junta struggles to impose order in the face of daily protests. One resident reportedly said that there are around 20,000 people trapped in the town. Most of them are kids and older people. The People's Defence Force was set up in response to the coup. Facing one of the region's best-equipped armies, its fighters are armed largely with homemade hunting guns. Reuters was unable to reach the group for comment. Tight restrictions on media, information and the internet remain. Hi Rowan, it's very nice of you to join us uh, this evening. How are you doing? Yeah, great, thank you. Yeah, really pleased to join you on the show. Thank you. Um, it's, it's so nice to have you. I know we've had uh, Hannah, your partner, um, on the show last month, but um, it's really nice to hear your perspective as well. So um, I thought, as we also uh, spoke to Hannah about her professional journey, how she sort of arrived in Myanmar, maybe you could tell us about your professional journey sort of how you ended up uh, in Myanmar, what drew you there, the kind of work you were pursuing? Yeah, of course. I, I think Hannah's professional journey has been slightly more calculated than mine, which has been quite fortuitous and entirely unplanned. Um, I started out studying um, one languages at university, um, and then I did a master's in Latin American studies, so I'm, I'm not quite sure how I ended up in Southeast Asia still. Um, <laughs> After a bit of time traveling uh, and teaching English uh, in Latin America um, and getting over a couple of jobs in bars and coffee shops that I did, I, um, I got into international development through a three-month community volunteering project in rural Nicaragua, mm-hmm. uh, which really kind of gave me a taste for the work. And after that, I was keen to work on a slightly larger scale and discover the world of technical assistance. Uh, and I got a project manager role with a British uh, development consultancy in London Mm -hmm. uh, and mostly worked on projects in southern and and west Africa Um, and then a posting came up in Myanmar in 2016 and although I didn't really know much about the country at that point it seemed like a really exciting time for the country and I leapt at the opportunity 
Yeah. Uh, so after a couple of years working uh, mostly on rural development, I moved to another British consultancy firm. Uh, and with them until the, the coup, I was focusing mostly on education policy reform. Um, we, had, we, we had to leave Myanmar last year um, because of COVID and, mm. uh, and actually spent a lot of last year in New Zealand with the family yeah. uh, while we were trying to get back in. And it was only in January once our visas were, were approved that we made it back to Yangon uh, three days before, before the coup kicked off. I know, the timing is astonishing. Um... Yeah. So what was it like, obviously, that your uh, arrival the second time around is very different, but um, what was it like when you were living in Myanmar before COVID and your life there? Was there a sense of optimism because you had a democratically elected government at that time? Yeah, I mean, for us, it was just the most wonderful place to, to live and, and we absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, arriving in, in 2016, it was, it was just a few months after Aung San Suu Kyi's um, government had been, uh, mm-hmm. had come into power. And, yeah. and yeah, there was, there was real excitement about democracy. Um, you know, at, at the time, Myanmar was, was going through this, this rapid transformation, you know, economically. The country was opening up and it, and it was kind of seeing consistently high growth at sort of six, seven percent. And you could see this actually um, kind of day to day in the way that sort of Yangon was, was, was changing with, you know, you were seeing new shopping malls and hotels, bars, restaurants um, all opening up. Um, and the country was, was kind of making real progress in, in bringing people out of poverty. And, and socially it was transforming too in quite a visible way. Um, I think probably um, most of all because of the boom in, in telecoms, which allowed Myanmar to, to kind of go in, in a really short period of time from almost total disconnection mm. to really widespread access to the internet. And, and through that, people being connected not just across the country, but also you know, with the outside world where they hadn't previously. Um, and, and so you, you could really see this, I mean, I, I suppose across all generations, but, but particularly mm. in, in young people who... You know, they've grown up over the last decade with, with smartphones. They're now IT literate, social media savvy, um, and their sort of outlook and way of thinking is is really quite unrecognisable from before. And, yeah. And then with um, with with COVID, um, you know, although Myanmar mostly avoided a, a health crisis, you know, on the scale of, of many other countries, mm-hmm. there have been major impacts in other areas. Um, now, for example, schools were closed for an entire school year mm-hmm. um, and the economy was being crippled by COVID restrictions. There was, a, there was a UN survey in December, I think, that found household incomes had reduced on average by almost half since the previous year. Um, but, but yeah, aside from, uh, from COVID, I think for many people, there, there was this real optimism mm-hmm. about democracy and although there were issues, uh, there were issues, and, and the NLD had a number of failings in the main people were, were still very positive about the direction of the country. Yeah. So then in December last year, um, there was this real excitement about people, you know, people participating in elections, which were only the second free election since military rule. Yeah. And despite COVID and the, the lockdown, there was high participation of registered voters um, slightly more actually than in the previous elections and voters queued for hours and hours in the streets to, to cast their votes. So after those elections there must have been a real sense of um, you know optimism that's almost evolved from what you had when you were living there and then when you returned in January um, you maybe didn't um, 
have a sense of what was to come. What was it like um, when you emerged from managed isolation, having returned there in January just before the coup? And how mm. did the people of Myanmar react to the shift from living in a free society to suddenly living under military control? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we had no idea that this was coming, and, and I really don't think anyone else saw it coming either. Mm. Um, I mean, in terms of how people reacted, you know, we were in our, um, our hotel room, uh, and from there we could we could see out over one of the main roads. Um, and in the first day or two after the coup, especially while phone and internet was down, the kind of strange thing was actually it appeared on the surface as though the world kept on turning, people were still going about their business, almost as if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't really until I was able to call and, and speak to friends that I could start to comprehend how profound an emotional reaction this this was triggering. Um, you know, people had lived through 50 years of fear under successive yeah. regimes. And I think as a foreigner, it was sometimes easy to forget that living there. But then speaking to friends now, you, you realised how deep and, and visceral that fear was and how overnight it had all just come flooding back. So I'd, I'd speak to friends who were audibly trembling and, and were just devastated at how in one fell swoop all the progress and freedoms of the last decade had been thrown away just like that. Mm. Um, so for us, uh, when we when we left quarantine, the protests were were kind of still playing out peacefully. Uh, we we were all, we were really quite on edge, um, sort of ex- expecting or, or waiting for a crackdown, or a response from the military. Yeah. Um, but at that point, the the protests were were peaceful and were massive in kind of the hundreds of thousands. Um, and it was really moving to see the, the scale and force of those protests. But, but it didn't last long, um, and as the military did begin to crack down, I think towards late February, mm. we increasingly had to, to stay at home or very close to home as the streets um, started to, you know, you had tear gas and, and rubber bullets, um, sound grenades, and, and eventually um, they turned to live rounds. Yeah. And then uh, I know you, you took a repatriation flight uh, back to come back here to New Zealand, Um I suppose at some point it just felt untenable being there anymore. So how did you react to those changing circumstances? What what sort of point did you realise that um, you're going to need to make that move and get on that flight? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a really agonising decision for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think although, you know, in reflection hour being there probably made um, very little difference. You know, we felt that we wanted to be as, as close as possible um, yeah. to our friends and colleagues to support them however we could. Um, and, and I think in part with so few foreigners in the country at that time because of COVID uh, and with the restrictions on uh, internet and the media, we kind of felt like we wanted to make sure at least someone was bearing witness to what was happening. Um, yeah. But yeah, as you said, in, in the end, we, we, we did have to, to leave and it was it was just gut-wrenching really. Um, you know, leaving what had been home for almost five years and, and saying goodbye to our friends. It, it kind of felt like we were betraying the country that had, you know, looked after us and, and given us so much. And then we, we kind of were jumping ship as soon as the going got tough. Um, but, but I guess on, on the flip side of that, um, you know, we've resolved that uh, having left the country, we will do everything we can to support from outside. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's it's an individual decision. It's um, everyone's circumstances are different. 
it must have been, I suppose you're still bearing witness and you're sharing uh, what ha- it has happened here in New Zealand. There are plenty of people who've heard your story now and may not have understood the, the context of, of what it was like there and the difference as well. You talked about earlier about the cell phone coverage, just that sort of change in how people use technology. And now that's been taken or, or diminished in a large scale. So that must be really, must have been really hard for people. No, absolutely it is, yeah. So in the immediate aftermath of the coup, uh, many people in Myanmar were looking to the international community to step in and take action. But with little in the way of action taken, how are the people of Myanmar responding and evolving their response to the ongoing situation as time goes on? Well, I mean, that's that's right. I mean, it it was kind of really striking to see Mm. how protesters were targeting... um, some of their, um, their process and their calls towards the international community. Yeah. You know, they, they would have um, placards in English and, and some of those were explicitly calling on the UN and, and the US to intervene. Um, Save Myanmar was, was one of the common slogans. Um, and as, as time went on, um, I think people saw the foreign embassies issuing statement after statement condemning the coup. But there was an increasing frustration at the lack of any tangible action. Mm. Uh, you know, people were calling on the UN Security Council to invoke uh, R2P, the responsibility to protect, and we're starting to ask, you know, how many lives need to be lost before action is going to be taken? Uh, and I think over time, there's been a realization that whether the coup succeeds or fails is actually going to be determined by domestic actors in Myanmar. Uh, and that's starting to give rise for increased support for armed resistance uh, in addition to nonviolent protest and, and civil disobedience. So now we see um, many ordinary people volunteering either to join one of the, the many existing uh, ethnic minority armed groups or mm. establishing new people's defence forces, uh, which are already commencing uh, low-level attacks on the police and military. Uh, and, and in terms of how else things have been evolving recently, I mean, it's really important to be clear that although Myanmar maybe isn't in the headlines to the extent that it was a couple of months ago, things haven't in any way improved. Mm. You know, for one, the death toll continues to rise. I think yesterday the, the best estimate was 783. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and, and, and keep in mind this includes people being killed just completely randomly for going about their daily business on the streets. Yeah. Um, I think just shy of 5,000 people have been arrested or detained, and, and most of those remain in detention. Uh, the Hunter is now publishing lists of those with arrest warrants out against them, displaying those in the streets. Mm. Um, the military is now conducting air raids in, in part of the country where ethnic armed groups control territory. Um, and as a result of this in Kayin, in the, um, the southeast towards the, the Thai border, um, I think 40,000 people have been displaced. Uh, in the north in Kachin, uh, 5,000 have been displaced. Oh, my goodness. That's... Yeah. And, and then, you know, the, the restrictions on the media and the Internet, as, as we said, are kind of making it harder to get information out on what's happening. Journalists are still being arrested. The regime's banned almost all non-state media. Um, internet access is now estimated to be um, restricted by 98%. Wow. So, you know, although we're not seeing those, those kinds of you know, single-day massacres of protesters that, that were happening earlier on. Um, the, the military in Myanmar are, are masters of psychological warfare, and there, there really is an increasing climate of fear. You know, one thing that increasingly seems to be happening is that um, 
security forces are raiding people's homes at night to detain people that are associated with the protests. And mm-hmm. if they don't find their target because they, you know, they've gone into hiding, they'll take a family member instead. Um, you know, after someone's detained, what seems to happen often is that the family won't hear anything for days or even weeks, and eventually a, a dead body is dumped outside the home, often with you know clear signs of, of torture. Um, so it's it's really just horrific. Um, the 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 nonviolent civil disobedience movement is continuing, which is the mm-hmm. strike action of workers across basically all key sectors, such as yeah. doctors, teachers, railway workers, you know, energy and power. Uh, bank staff, um, and this is proving a really effective means of undermining the center. Yeah. But between the financially increasing financial pressure um, and threats on individual safety, it, it seems that those on strike are, are clearly starting to fill the pinch. Um, I read the other day that many bank staff are gradually starting to go back to work. Right. So, so I think there's there's a real concern that as time goes on. And you know, let's not forget that yesterday was the 100th day since the coup. Um, that slowly, kind of through attrition, the coup might become a fait accompli. Um, people, people are determined not to let that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems that they're finding you know, new and kind of creative ways to resist. Um, you've kind of seen the peaceful protests has changed their tactics a bit. So, you know, whereas before you had these large organised marches, which kind of made them easy targets for the military. More and more now, we're seeing these sort of quick flash mob protests that start yeah. and finish before the military can, can get there. Okay. But one, one encouraging thing that we're seeing is we're starting to hear reports of defections from within the military. Oh, um, it, it seems that that's on a really small scale at the moment, and it's really risky for those defected. Mm. But if it grows, ultimately, it could really prove quite decisive in how things play out. That's that's really interesting. So it's very much a, a watch this space and see what happens. But hmm. this story isn't isn't over yet. Um, and that takes me to my my last question, which is uh, to talk about your fundraising. I know when you were hmm. sort of initially returned to New Zealand, um, you and uh, your partner set up a give a little page. Um, could you tell me just a bit about that? And can you remind um, our listeners why uh, the fundraising uh, campaign was called Three Fingers for Freedom? Uh, yeah, the um, the name of Three Fingers um, was after the three-fingered salute, which mm-hmm. is, um, I think was um, picked up from protesters in, in Thailand and has been used in, in Hong Kong and, and now in Myanmar as a kind of a salute for, for freedom. Um, and the, the fundraiser went really well. We'd initially set a target of $10,000 and in the end raised over 15000 Um great. Yeah, and, and we actually picked up um, an additional 15000 US from a, a foundation that wanted to contribute as well. Oh, brilliant. Um, so we were really pleased with that. Um, the fundraiser is actually closed now, mm-hmm. but um, I would urge people to continue support if they can, whether that's providing financial support that allows workers to continue striking um, or funding food and and other humanitarian relief. Um, There was a a UN report last month that projected that by next year, poverty of Myanmar could double to to 48% of people. Um, You know, and that's, you know, without even mentioning, um, you know, these refugees who are now having to flee their homes because they're being uh, bombed and and shelled. So if if anyone is interested to support actually some some friends of ours set up a website which is collating um several different fundraisers that you can choose from all right um so if people are interested that website is i support myanmar.com 
myanmar.com. Okay, I support myanmar.com. If anyone wants to find out more about how they can help people, then uh, check that out. Okay, Rowan, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been really lovely to talk to you and um, great to hear your perspective on on this ongoing situation. And definitely it's something we'll continue to cover on Activate. So um, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Akira, everyone. This is Greg here from the Activate team at Amnesty International and Plains FM. Um, Every month on the show, as you know, if you're familiar with the show, we do do a section called Good News Stories, which is where we highlight some campaign successes from Amnesty from all around the world and in New Zealand. I just wanted to highlight um, two um, victories briefly. The first one comes from Mozambique. The news of this actually came through the Amnesty United States uh, website on March 8th. And this is about a person called Bishop Lisboa who is a human rights um, campaigner and a bishop from the Catholic Church in Cabo Delgado in Mozambique. And following a long defamatory and intimidatory campaign against the bishop by government affiliates, um, Pope Francis announced in February 2021 that Bishop Lisboa was going to be transferred to Brazil to carry out some work there which um, this relocation is seen as a move that will ensure his safety and cease a smear campaign against him. Um, Basically, as the Bishop of Pemba, Don Luis Fernando Lisboa was among the few voices in Mozambique who were speaking up about the deplorable humanitarian and human rights conditions in Cabo de Goldo, where there's been an ongoing armed conflict since 2017. Um, So the Amnesty USA group... Uh, released an urgent action on 26th of August last year, 2020, calling on the Mozambique government to end the campaign against Bishop Lisboa and to ensure him a safe and enabling environment. Um, In the context of increasing repression of freedom expression and press freedom in Mozambique, Bishop Lisboa's transference to Brazil, which was announced in March 2021, could represent an additional measure by the Vatican to ensure his safety. So that's a good outcome based on pressure from members of the Amnesty team in the United States. The second um, story I just wanted to highlight comes from the Amnesty International UK website, which you can check out at amnesty.org.uk. This was an urgent action um, situation and a response um, in Peshawar. In uh, Pakistan, a professor Muhammad Ishmael was finally granted bail on 12th of April this year, 2021, and the story came out on the 29th of April in 2021. Um, Almost three months since his pre-arrest bail was cancelled on 2nd of February, he was finally granted bail. So that came after weeks of court delays and holding his bail hearing. All that time he was detained in a prison which had a known COVID-19 outbreak. There were some charges that had been brought against him called terror financing um, in an anti-terrorism court, which, so the situation is he's still, he's been released on bail, which is the positive part of the story. The not so good part is that he still remains at risk of a lengthy um, sentence if he is convicted on those charges. However, due to his ailing health, and um, he's 66 years old and has some health conditions, it is good news that he was released. This announcement came out at the end of last month and Amnesty International is going to continue to monitor the case and respond as appropriate to any developments that arise, including the charges either being dropped or the case continuing. 
Um, you can check that story out on amnesty.org.uk, as I said. So just two two examples there of Amnesty's um, successes and work and um, something that we should all consider as we continue to write letters and sign petitions and do human rights work. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been lovely to be with you and to talk about human rights, one of our favourite subjects, of course. Um, We will continue to update you on the main subject of tonight's show, um, the situation in Myanmar in future shows. And uh, we do encourage you to check out isupportmyanmar.com, which is the website that Rowan was talking about at the end of his interview. Just a quick note on events. We do have a monthly letter writing and that is, we've already had that for May, but in June it will be around mid-month. So check out our Facebook page, Amnesty International in Christchurch. And also if you've got any questions or you just want to reach out and ask about an event or what's coming up, you can message us through Facebook or you can email us at amnestychristchurch at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Plains FM 96.9 FM uh, for having us on their show. Thank you to Peter for producing the show. And um, oh, reminder, it's Amnesty's 60th birthday this year. So if you haven't thought about that or we haven't mentioned it enough, don't forget. And um, we'll be talking about that throughout the year, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your night. <laughs>